Thank you all for coming. Uh, today we're doing things a little differently because it is Palm Sunday. First of all, the two to five-year-olds, you guys will be going out and hanging out with Pastor Danielle, but not quite yet. We're going to go read through the Bible passage and do some fun stuff, and hopefully you guys will have fun doing that. Uh, number two, you guys are going to help me fulfill a childhood dream today. So get ready. And number three, this is a warning. This sermon might go off the rails. <laughs> I was practicing something else, and it didn't quite work, and we'll see how it goes. But um, if you have any questions about what I say, please feel free to come and talk to me now and forever. Uh, <laughs> God likes twists and surprises, and I hope you guys like them too, so I hope it's all cool. Let me begin with this question. Who loves a parade? Raise your hand. So... This is the Rose Bowl Parade from two, two years ago. I used to live about two blocks away from it, and I didn't realize it was happening until I was sitting up here in the Bay Area watching it on TV going, hey, I can see my apartment. This is weird. But I, I never actually attended the Rose Bowl Parade. Uh, here's the courts, of course, and there's the guest of honor, the, the queen of the Rose Bowl, or Rose Parade. Here we have another, a parade I actually attended once. I uh, wasn't a big fan of it, but the people that were with me were. And if you see right there, that is the uh, conquering hero of sorts. And I'll show you a couple pictures of other uh, parades. So, for example, here's a parade of the Veterans Parade, where they celebrate some of the war victories and some of the struggles that our men and women in service have done for this country. This was from 2014. Uh, going back a few years, we have the 1945 parade uh, for victory in Japan in World War II, and that is not the most famous picture from this event. This is, and I have no idea who those people are, but I heard a story that the woman was actually married, and the guy just walked up to her and planted one on her. So I was kind of hoping there was another picture of, right after, of her delivering a slap to his face and him going, like that, but I couldn't find one. Uh, here's a, a parade from 1918. This is uh, France in the victory over Germany. And going back, actually going forward again, this is 1945. This is again the uh, VJ Day Parade in New York. And this person right here is the conquering hero. That's General Douglas MacArthur, who was the uh, head of the army in the Pacific. And he, of course, is raising his hand and saying hello to everyone. Here we have a picture of a nondescript uh, war parade for, in Rome. And here's the conquering hero uh, behind the chariot. And... Last but not least, this is a Stella somewhere in uh, Rome, and we see again a conquering hero behind a chariot. The title of today's sermon is The Victory Parade That Wasn't. And hopefully I can explain why it was a victory parade and why it wasn't parade, but I'm going to need your help. Uh, when the time comes, I'm going to need you to put your hand in the air with one of these, and I want you to wave it up like this, and I need you to shout these words. Not say, shout. And those who went before and those who were following were shouting. Okay, it wasn't, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. I do want a little more energy though. So do this week. Everybody stand up. Yes, you do. You do want to stand up. Put it like this, okay? All right. Do it with me. 
Just wave your hands in the air and wave them like you just don't care. And if you're down with Jesus Christ, somebody say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you don't stop. Somebody scream. Oh. Okay, much better. All right, we're working on this. We're getting there. Okay, everybody take a seat. Good job, good job, good job. Let us begin. It was somewhere around the year 30 A.D., in the land of Israel, under the control of the mighty Roman Empire. And as prescribed in the Torah, the Jewish people were assembling to celebrate the Lord God, freeing the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, known as the Passover. Among those making the pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem were a teacher named Jesus and his students. The place was electric, energy and enthusiasm everywhere, and just a little bit of fear and trepidation. And we're going to see some of that fear and trepidation now. I need one person at every table, at every table, to grab a palm frond, the big palm frond, and join me back here. And I'm going to need Jack Primeth to join us. Jack is playing the role of Jesus today. Please welcome, say hi to Jesus. Beautiful. Come on back, come on back. That's okay. That's good. So, let's go ahead and read. Now, when they drew near to Bethlehem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. Can you be my disciple? Oh, can you be my disciple? Come with me. I'm not, you know, actually, we're both disciples. Jesus sent two of his disciples. Send us. Good. Thank you. <laughs> and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt. Here's our beautiful colt. Tied on which no one has ever sat. Pristine. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at a door outside the street, in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And now let's take the colt over to where Jesus is. And they brought the colt to Jesus. And they threw their cloaks on it. I'm not taking my shirt off. And he sat on it. <laughs> and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. So can I have a couple of you jump in front? No, 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 don't keep it up, keep it up. Just walk up here. Okay, I need four people right here. Four people right here. One, two, three, four. I need everybody else behind. Everybody else, raise up your palms in the air and wave them like you just don't care. And those who went before, keep walk, walk that way. And those who went before, and those who followed, we're shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And now you are done. Thank you very much. <laughs> Take a seat. <laughs> now, I've wanted to do that since I was this kid's age. I had been going to Palm Sunday masses for almost my entire life. And every time this happened, I would go, I want to be the guy that walks down the middle. And it never happened, so I got to do it now. So thank you for fulfilling my childhood dream. Thank you very much. So... <laughs> Oh, I forgot one thing. This is the important part of today. 
let's bless our children and send them off. If, if you are a child, go to someone that is near and dear to you, maybe a parent, maybe a family friend, maybe a cousin, maybe a loved one. If you were a child at one point, yeah, that counts. So please place your hand on someone next to you. And we're going to thank God for what he has done in you and through you, through your adolescence into this age of adulthood. And also for those that are coming up still, such as Phoebe over there chewing on the palm, which is scary. So let's all pray together in Hebrew. Yevarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha ya'er Adonai panav alecha v'yakunecha yisa Adonai panav alecha v'yasem lecha shalom. Amen. And in English, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and set upon you his peace. Amen. And so if you are a two to five-year-old, please join Pastor Danielle, the young lady standing in the back with the young, other young lady in her hands. So let's take another look at this account from the, the victory parade. Jesus is east of Jerusalem in the town of Bethany and Bethphage. Both of those mean house of figs and house of unripe figs. And if you're wondering what does that, that mean, look a little bit later in the story. You'll find out what that's referring to. Anyways, Jesus tells two of his disciples to go secure a colt for him to ride into Jerusalem. Here's the colt. Why? The reasons are, of this aren't found in the story of Mark, but they are found in Matthew and Luke. So here he it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. What prophet? The prophet Zechariah, of course, who God used to foretell the salvation of Israel while the nation was a conquered people under the Persian Empire 500 years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. And this is what he said. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus orchestrated this entrance on a colt so that those welcoming him into Jerusalem would think, oh, this is what Zechariah was talking about. This man, Jesus, is coming as a king. What's so humble about a man riding a colt? Well, a horse is a mighty animal, one which men of power and prestige ride, and one that is used in battle. The colt is a beast of burden. It carries priests, it carries merchants, it carries goods. A king that rides a colt is therefore humble. And since the king is not riding his horse of battle, he also comes in peace. Now let's take a look at the second part. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. The Gospel of Luke actually states that the spreading of the cloaks and leafy branches or palms began while Jesus was still outside the city. They didn't happen when he, once he got in. They went out to meet him, and this was a common behavior. A conquering hero entering a city would not wait for the, have the people wait inside for him. The people would come outside to greet him and join him as he entered the city. The cloaks. This custom is seen 700 years before Jesus during the coronation of King Jehu. And you can find this in the second book of Kings. And this is what it says. I'll read the first part first. And he said thus, and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste every man, every man of them took his garments and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. 
So there, again, there's a precedent for also putting their cloaks on the ground before a conquering hero. And the Psalms, or Psalms, the Palms. The Palms are a symbol of celebration to God. And we see this in several places in the Bible, including a Jewish writing not found in our Protestant Bibles, the second book of Maccabees. About 140 years before Jesus, there was a conquering hero named Simon Maccabee, and he purified the temple in Jerusalem, which had been defiled by the ruling empire at the time. And this is how they did it. Carrying ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches and also palms, fronds of palm, they offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had been given success to the purifying of his holy place. So there's another precedent set there. Palms are important. Palms represent purity. Now, as for the hymns of thanksgiving, where does that come from? Well, what the people were shouting as Jesus entered Jerusalem was a quote from Psalm 118. And those who were, went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is what Psalm 118 says. Save us, Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, how about this little extra bit? Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, which shows up in uh, a reading from Mark. Well, that was a recognition of what they had been hoping for for 800 years and what they had believed was about to happen. God was going to bring about his promise to David and place a king descended from David on the throne of Israel. And given how he entered Jerusalem, they assumed Jesus would be that king. It's a great story. But when you think about it, there are some interesting questions that are left unanswered. To me, the biggest one is that when you welcome the conquering hero, that is, you hold a victory parade, the parade happens after the victory. It'd be kind of presumptuous to have a victory parade and then go fight the battle and then lose and then... What the heck was that? Jesus' victory parade came before he had secured the victory. Why? Well, from the perspective of the Christian believer, God had come to save the world in the form of Jesus. And after three years, after three years of beginning the construction of his kingdom of heaven on earth, this phase of kingdom building was about to end. Jesus had arrived to complete his work of salvation in Jerusalem, which would culminate in his death. This isn't a physical kingdom of God that we're talking about. Though, oops, though, it is a kingdom in which God has written his law upon people's hearts, in which God will be their God and they will be his people, and a kingdom in which every member of the kingdom will be able to know the king personally. And this comes from Jeremiah 31. This is the, the new covenant that God shares with Jeremiah. So from this perspective, we see that this procession of God in human form into the city of Jerusalem is a fait accompli. It's the king entering his kingdom, and the war is practically over. The victory is inevitable. And as gospel singer Yolanda Adams says, it's already all right. A premature celebration, totally acceptable. But the people welcoming Jesus into the city did not believe that he was God. Their new king would be a human being. That's what they thought. They did not believe that Jesus had come to begin the work of salvation. They believed that salvation through war was on its way. And they did not believe that Jesus was going to die. For what victorious leader dies before he, he leads his army into battle and wins? So what exactly were they expecting? 
revolt against Rome, physical freedom from their outside invaders, and they're expecting a military leader chosen and anointed by God for this purpose. They were expecting a resurrected nation-state led by one of David's descendants in the land promised to them and their forefathers a century ago. But this isn't why Jesus came. This was not why Jesus entered Jerusalem on a cult. The people who greeted him and saw with their own eyes and heard with their own ears, they did not understand this. How did they miss when they were actually there? How did they miss this? And this is something that we can now see. Well, it has a little something to do with their history, a history filled with oppression, precedence, and hope. So we see here a timeline describing what these people welcoming Jesus had experienced as a people for a thousand years, them and their descendants. So before 1050, we have this amalgamation of tribe states that are fighting and arguing, and yeah, they're, they're all related to Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob, but they're loosely connected, and it's Saul that brings them together. Saul is the first king of Israel, and he unites these 12 tribes into one nation for the very first time. And David succeeds him, and then Solomon succeeds him. And then they mess things up. Israel splits into two. We have a northern kingdom, and we have a southern kingdom, and we have two sets of kings ruling both nations, both separate nations now. And then in the 1800s, we have to start the influence of these other uh, powers around them. Assyria and Egypt, they start to operate in Israel as vassals. So instead of having um, the king of Judah being the king of Judah, he's really just a governor who's reporting to the king of Egypt. And then in Israel, up north, we have the same thing happening where this king is really just a governor acting in the place of the king of Assyria. So now they are no, no longer free. They are now under the control of outside forces. This continues, 723, Assyria now conquers, takes over the northern kingdom. It says, this governorship isn't working, I'm just going to take over the entire thing. It's now part of the empire. 586, Babylon comes in, sweeps in underneath, takes over that southern kingdom, and now no more governorship, this is now part of the empire. 536, 538, Persia moves in. Here comes King Cyrus, King Darius, King Darius, King Cyrus, uh, Cyrus. Oh, you one or the other. They, he comes in, and now they con- he conquers all of Israel. It's now under the Persian empire. That's what, one, two, that's the third empire to, to have control over Israel. And it's been now 300 years since Israel has had its own independence. 332, here comes Alexander the Great and the Macedonian Empire. They conquer Israel. Alexander dies. His kingdom, his empire gets split into four. One of those empires in Egypt now controls Israel. Palestine, again, no control. It just continues. It just goes on and on and on. 198, the Seleucids, who are also part of uh, Egypt, also go up and they conquer Israel. We have Antiochus and his whole chain of weirdness going on. Finally, after all of this happening, little ray of light. There's a period of independence because of the Maccabees. The Maccabees come in. They're part of this Hasmonean dynasty. And we hear about this in the book of 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees that are found in uh, some Bibles. And it tells a story of how they came into power through violence. But then, here comes Rome. And once again, after only 100 years, about 100 years of independence, and Rome comes in, takes, sweeps in, and they're all under control of an outside force once again. And this is where those people that were watching Jesus 
This is what they had been experiencing this whole time. Everything in orange is a time when Israel was subject to someone else, another nation. In these 800 years, only 100 years of independence, the people never forgot God's promise, though. With all of this going on, they never forgot his promise to return the lands to the people, to give them control again. And that 100 years of independence was brought only by violence, military action. It set a precedent, though. The expectation now was that God would raise up an anointed warrior, just like he had done with the Maccabees, just like he had done with David. And that person would force out the oppressors and return the land to Israel. That expectation was placed on Jesus, too. And this idea was reiterated by the prophets during this period, including Zechariah. This is the verse from earlier. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. So I know what you're thinking. Mark just said, he brought this up earlier, and he just said that whole thing talks about a peaceful transition, a peaceful king, a king coming with peaceful swing. How does this represent violence? It's because you have to look at the rest of the passage. And the rest of the passage is just talking about violence. This passage, the the first part of the passage actually talks about God punishing the enemies of Israel. I know it's small. I'm going to read it for you. It says, uh, Tyre, which is up to the north, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust, fine gold like the mud of the streets. Money. But behold, God will strip her of her possessions and strike her down on the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon will see it, and they'll be afraid. Gaza too, and they shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. All violent terminology. All preceding this whole discussion about a peaceful king entering into Israel. And after, I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Judah, Ephraim, Zion, those are all nicknames for the nation of Israel. What God is saying here is essentially, I'm going to use you as my weapon against these other people. You will be doing the fighting. And later on it says, Then the Lord will appear over his armies, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet, and his armies will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of the host will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. All of this, again, this, this violent imagery to suggest that When you read this thinking, maybe God is going to come in a a violent way. Maybe we should expect this. The king who rides this cult will be a man of peace when he arrives, but the salvation of Israel will only come through war. So we can understand why the people who greeted Jesus through this arrival thought that God was about to deliver them from oppression and that God was going to use violence. God's war was inevitable. And he would use Jesus to drive the Romans out of Israel and reestablish this single unified kingdom, this nation-state with physical borders controlled by his people. One nation under God. One nation under God. It's a phrase used to describe our country. And right now, the attention of the U.S. has been captured by the campaigns of many presidential candidates. He's laughing right now. I'm not here to discuss politics, per se or endorse any political views. But I would like to point out one religious perspective that has reared its head within Christianity. That's called dominionism. So we have this verse here in uh, Genesis 128. God blessed humanity, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every little thing, every living thing that moves upon this earth. Those who believe in dominionism, look at this verse, and they believe this is it. Dominionism or kingdom now theology has this idea. In order to fulfill God's command to hold control over the world and to bring about the desire of, of the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to make that happen, the people of God must use everything at their disposal, including political power, to make it come to pass. And it makes sense. The fastest way to influence society is through its government, right? And it sounds great. With Christians holding power, the values of Jesus can be legislated into society. Through laws, people will be initially forced, but eventually they'll get around to it, and they'll adopt these virtues of loving God and neighbor and all that entails. And if we properly steward God's creation, then we should hold as much power and influence as we can. The gospel can then be shared without any fear of persecution. Sounds great, right? And presidential candidates have fostered these desires within their rhetoric. So here's some statements by some of these candidates. One who was addressing violence against Christians in the Middle East said this, Christians are being persecuted in stunning numbers. They're being stoned. They're being tortured. We need leadership in America. Another one said this, in representing an apparent lack of Christian representation in the U.S. The Christians are being treated horribly because we have nobody to represent the Christians. Believe me, if I run and I win, I will be the greatest representative of the Christians in a long time. (laughs) Regarding the current vacancy in the U.S. Supreme Court, one said, we are one justice away from the Supreme Court ruling that the government can take away our religious liberty and force every one of us to violate our faith on penalty of prison. We are one justice away from the Supreme Court ordering Ten Commandment monuments torn down across this country. Let me be very clear to every man and woman here. I will not compromise away your religious liberty. These are all current candidates for, for president. And again, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with the sentiments behind these statements, and I'm not saying by any means that having these views should disqualify these candidates. Although, I, yeah. I'm not saying it. I'm not saying it should disqualify them at all. But what I am saying is that these ideas are feeding something. They're feeding something that's already present within the church that places the focus not on Christ and his redeeming power, but upon relying on ourselves and pragmatically building our own power. These ideas feed the fear of those who feel marginalized by saying, if you're not careful about holding on to and building upon the, whatever power you have right now, you will continue to lose that power and influence. Be scared. Not only is winning important, but winning at all costs is important. Because when we win, God wins, right? Not the other way around. When we win, God wins. And when we have this skewed perspective, our perspective of Jesus is skewed too. If we held this perspective, and we were there welcoming Jesus into the city of Jerusalem rather than crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, Lord. Lord, can you come up here, please, real quick? So if we held this perspective, and here is Jesus sitting upon the colt, and we're shouting out, Hosanna, Jesus, save us! We might actually be singing this tune instead. Stay there. 
all about me. This guy, he's just bringing what I need, but it's all about me. Thank you, Jesus, again for, for doing that. So, as I see it, there are two problems with dominionism. The first is that it expects that having Christians in power will lead to the propagation of these values of Jesus, resulting in a just and loving society. And historically, there's no guarantee that Christians holding power will lead to a just society. In fact, there are many examples of the opposite. When followers use the ends to justify the means to achieve those ends. If you read the book of Acts in the letters of Paul, you'll see Christians in the first century maneuvering for power and influence. The end was the propagation of the true faith. The means was slander and marginalization of an ethnic group, the Jewish followers of Jesus. 1,700 years ago, when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, Christians in power eliminated their Christian brothers and sisters for having divergent views. The end was a state in faith unified in thoughts and in doctrine. Christendom. The means was marginalization, exile, or the death of anyone who disagreed with the established doctrine. 900 years ago, the Christians rushed to the Holy Ranch to defend the faith. The end was a land safe for Christian pilgrims to visit and inhabit. The means was war against Muslims, the Crusades. 700 years ago, Christians in Spain retook control of their country. The end was a country safe for Christians. The means was forced conversions, the Inquisition. 300 years ago, Christians from England sought religious freedom and blessings from God. The end was a group of colonies safe for Christians to practice their faith as they chose. The means was rigid enforcement of Christian-based laws, which led to the execution of falsely accused men and women, the Salem witch trials. And for years, including right now, Christians across the world sought to protect the church from scandal, believing that the good done by the church outweighed the evil done by individuals within the church. And governments, local governments, state governments complied in agreements. And for a time, the end was a church able to stand on the moral high ground. The means was the cover-up of sexual molestation and spiritual abuse committed by clergy against thousands and thousands of children. I'm not saying that Christians and community cannot affect positive change in this world for God and for everyone else. If I believed that, I would not be standing here right now. But what I am saying is that a Christian majority does not guarantee that those in power will do anything more than what people in power typically do. Gain more power, centralize it, and then do what is necessary to maintain that status quo. And the means for maintaining the status quo often includes propagating an us-versus-them mentality against some subset of the community, including victims that are victims of the majority. Defending the poor, defending the widow, defending the foreigner, it all takes second place to we must be pragmatic in maintaining our status quo because we will seek the will of God for the society. We will do it. If they come into power... The will of God will be thwarted. What we have to remember is that no one, no one, no matter how strong their relationship is with God or how much they've dedicated themselves to following his will, no one has a monopoly on understanding God and his will. Everyone will misunderstand God at some point, and that's why humility and leadership is so important. 
This brings me to the second point and the final point that I'm making against the the, the dominionism. (laughs) Historically, God doesn't use the powerful to affect change. He uses the marginalized. Where does lasting, changing influence come from? It's usually not from the seat of power. It comes from the perimeter. It comes from the desert. It comes from the edges of society. Abraham, right over here. Abraham, he was a foreigner sent to live in a foreign land who became the forefather of a nation and the origin of three major religions. Moses. Moses was a murderer who lived in exile in the wilderness for 40 years, and God used him to rescue a nation from slavery. Over here we have Esther. Not that Esther. This Esther. A foreigner held captive in a harem who saved the people from genocide. Back here we have Elijah, and he represents Zechariah and all the Old Testament prophets. They were outsiders from the edge of society who were speaking truth to power and who were hated by those in power for speaking that truth. Over here, John the Baptist, from the desert, preparing the way of the Lord. Right over there, Francis of Assisi. He was a wealthy playboy, but he renounced his status and his wealth and became an example of what it meant to live in Christ. Martin Luther, an obscure monk who struggled with his own self-worth, but he spoke out against corruption within the church, and he made a lot of changes. Over here, Martin Luther King, a second-class citizen in the segregated American South, and a preacher at a small church, whose work helped lead to massive societal change. Desmond Tutu, also a second-class citizen, from the apartheid-era South Africa, who led the Truth Commission that healed many of the wounds of racism that threatened to engulf and destroy their country after apartheid was removed. Finally, Jesus, a stone worker and itinerant preacher from the backwater of Nazareth, where nothing good comes from. Why does God work, often work through those on the edges of society? It's because those in the center of power simply don't hear them very well because their own expectations of God revolve around and are tied into their own continued power and authority. You can't see what God is doing in the perimeter, doing in the perimeter if you only live in the center. You can't see what God can do if you only live in the perimeter and you ever look towards the center. And yes, many of these people that I pointed out, they are all eventually placed in positions of authority and power. But for the most part, they didn't forget the lessons from the edges of society. The poor, the widow, and the foreigner are just as important to God as anyone else. Many conversations in American Christianity surrounding this year's presidential elections, they say that they're focused on a perspective of love, but instead the language is often a perspective of fear. And the problem with a perspective of fear is that it can't see anything but, anything, anything but that which feeds that fear. It's only, if I look at Rob right there, Rob is not a, a wonderful person that, that can share things and, and be things to me, and God can use him. God, Rob is a threat. I must consider him a threat and, and avoid him or try to minimize him in some way so that he cannot be a threat to me. That's how your perspective changes when you're in this, this, this view. So it doesn't see our problems and say, we have to have compassion for a neighbor. It says, the solution is to fight for power. And once we're in power, we're going to make sure we stay in power. It doesn't say God wants us to work together for everyone's benefit. It says 
this, all of this, is a zero-sum game. And there's only so much to go around. Sorry, but it's us against them. The only way we can get ahead is if they fail. The only way we can stay ahead is if they fall down and they stay down. The good news of this perspective that I'm talking about isn't God is here to save us and redeem the world, and God is doing the work, and he wants us to join, us, join him. This, this good news of the fearful is essentially a variation on the prosperity gospel. God helps those who help themselves. So let's earn his blessings by working towards blessing ourselves. There was a video excerpt uh, from a message given by Pastor Anthony Stanley over in Atlanta, and it went viral, and it makes this point better than I ever could. So I'm just going to refer let him take over. Now, real quick, I want to say something to a couple groups, all right? First, I want to say something to all of you who are 45 years old and older. You don't have to raise your hand, okay? 45 and older. Look up here. Many of you have grown weary, and you've lost heart. And the reason is because you have fixed your eyes on a political system, you have fixed your eyes on a political leader. You have fixed your eyes on the good old days. You fixed your eyes on the economy. And you are, you are growing weary and you need to knock it off. And I'll tell you why. Because you are scaring the children. <laughs> you are. Now look up here, look, look. The generation that's coming along behind us are gonna take their cue from us. And here's the cue we're giving them. Oh my goodness, if we don't get the right person in the, in the, you know, elected in office, it's the end of the world. If we don't fix the economy, it's the end of the world. If we don't have religious freedom like my mama and my grandmama had religious freedom, it's the end of the world. Oh my goodness, if we don't get the right laws passed, if we don't have the right policies, it's all coming unraveled. Nothing could be further from the truth. Look up here. Government, and po government matters, policies matter, but neither of those matter as much as men and women who understand this word. Faith, confidence that God keeps his promises and that nothing can thwart the plans of God. We know this from the Old Testament. We know this from the New Testament. We know this because the most powerful person in Judea, Pilate, looked at Jesus and said, what is truth? Crucify him, game over, it's done, let's move on. And the only reason you know who Pilate is, the only reason you know who Pilate is, is because you know the story of Jesus. Pilate, the governor, becomes a footnote in the story of Jesus. In fact, most of the first century people you know about, you know about because they're part of the story of Jesus. We have nothing to fear. So all of you people over 45, knock it off. You need to model for the next generation that God is in control. God can be trusted. Get involved in the political system. Get involved in culture. Get involved in your society. But you never fix your eyes there. You fix your eyes on Jesus. So I was wondering, could I actually assemble an entire sermon based on other people's sermons and just deliver them? <laughs> because that was so much better than what I could ever do. But that word of wisdom that, that Pastor Stanley shared is not just for the 45 and older of us. It's for all of us. Here's the perspective that I hope you can consider as you leave today. The people who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem did so with expectations of who God is and how he would work. Because of that, they completely misread what God was doing right in front of them. I say to you, drop your expectations of God. Yes, he has made promises to us, and he will keep them because he is loving and gracious and a just God, and he's not a human being limited by time and space. 
God keeps his promises. But how and when God makes those promises come to pass is completely up to him. Don't presume how he works just because of your own preferences or even because of how he has done things in the past. Yes, be proactive, but act based on what you've observed God already doing, not based on what everyone else is doing around you. And if you're one of those people on the perimeter, on the edge, it might not feel good, but it's more likely you can hear and respond to God better than the rest of us. As Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for those who have been humbled by life, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't have to invite you to join this parade. You're already in it. It's just a matter of letting God lead. And if you're in the center, get out to the perimeter once in a while. Go to places you wouldn't normally go. Read things you wouldn't normally read. Speak with people with whom you wouldn't normally speak. Living where we do, most of us aren't marginalized socially, ethnically, or economically. God does some amazing work here in the center. But God is also doing some amazing things away from here as well. And God wants you to join in his victory parade. But you might be surprised at how he wants you to join him. To close, I just want to point out one telling aspect of the story that we have today, but you can't see it just by reading one of the Gospels. You have to look at three of them, in fact, the Synoptic Gospels, that all talk about this one story, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's greeted by the crowd, and immediately goes to the temple and proceeds to wreck shop. He's tossing over chairs, he's hitting tables, and he's telling those merchants that are selling sacrificial animals, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. It's the kind of violent behavior that we expected from a conquering hero, though it has many levers of meaning that we're not going to be able to talk about today. Now, what does the Gospel of Mark say that Jesus did after he entered Jerusalem? He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The conquering hero enters the city, and instead of receiving more accolades and offering thanksgiving to God or going about the business of armed revolts, nothing happens. Jesus looks around, tells his disciples, we're calling it a day, and they leave the city. It's completely anticlimactic. There's no act of violence. There's no symbolic overthrow of power. There's no castigation of watered-down worship. For theologian William Platcher, this version of the story in Mark says this, Yes, this is the Son of God. But no, that does not mean at all what you thought it meant. God has a habit of doing the unexpected. Don't just see and hear what he's doing. Put away your expectations and let God show you and explain to you himself what he's doing and then join the victory parade and for god's sakes enjoy being surprised by god have fun at the victory parade dear god thank you for everything you show to us help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear all that you are doing in seeking your guidance help us to elect leaders and put people in position these men and women who have a heart for you whether they know you or not right now Help them to seek wisdom and compassion for both the powerful and the powerless. But no matter who has chosen to lead us, and no matter we have chosen to lead us, help us to remember that it is not they who will have the final say on things. It's you. Help us to see the world around us with eyes of love and not eyes of fear. Help us to see what you are doing 
and give us the courage to join you in your works of redemption and love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray.